This is Ian Hartley. I'm Warren Kay. And I am Sasha Steenbergen. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Welcome, everyone, as we continue on our journey through um, uh, understanding a God who uh, was better than we imagined, uh, rediscovering who God really is through the eyes of Jesus. And um, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis, but today we're taking a break from Genesis. And so, Ian, explain to us uh, what's happening. Podcast uh, listeners may not know that uh, um, we have a few groups discussing uh, topics all connected with rediscovering God. And uh, one of the groups is very into Genesis and they're very analytical and they have a lot of background information to be added. For instance, we have a Hebrew scholar as part of the group. So every now and then she makes input, which is very interesting. And so I want to give that group time to catch up with our podcasts uh, so that I we can use the information that's coming from that group in the podcasts. Mm. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I've been wanting to talk about the seven signs that John gives in his gospel. For a long time so i put those two factors together and uh without consultation just switch the topic now then i've confessed my sin and that's enough for today <laughs> i'm looking forward to it okay so now we're in the gospel of john and this is the first of those seven signs and uh so i'll read john chapter 2 and verse 1 where it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Okay, so perhaps you missed the first statement. <laughs> On the third day. <laughs> what does that mean? The third day from when? Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So um, when did people generally have weddings in Canada? Which day of the week? Well, I usually... would say... Let's yeah. Go ahead, Sasha. No, I was just going to say probably Saturday, but maybe that's yes. not right. So um, if, you, if you watch on Saturdays uh, in the parks and in some churches and some venues, there are lots of weddings going on. And so... Um, for weddings amongst the Jews, it was the third day. Um, they, of course, counted Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right? Sunday was the first day. Uh, and so they had weddings on Tuesdays in our language. And the reason they did that was because if you read the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the third day has a double blessing. 
So on a third on the third day has nothing to do with what had happened in the chapter before. It's just talking about the third day of the week, that that's the day that they had weddings. Yes, it's coding. Um, Fascinating. And if you understand the culture, you can decode what this is actually saying. Hmm. Interesting. Had so no now idea. In, the, in, in the story of Abraham, it says on the third day, he's taking Isaac to sacrifice him on the third day. Um, now, we're not saying it wasn't literally the third day, but when uh, a Jewish reader reads on the third day, he says, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> hmm. That's great. I like that. And then uh, post uh, the Old Testament stories and the life of Jesus, he's raised on the third day. Mm -hmm. These things are all linked together culturally. Okay. Okay, so when, uh, when the Jews had a wedding, and it's still like this in some cultures, uh, it wasn't a reception with punch and plastic cups and a short ceremony. There was no interlude for pictures, <laughs> but there was an interlude where the marriage was consummated in a tent. Huh. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but you know, the couple goes into this tent and comes out after a while and says, okay, we're married. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So <laughs> uh, that's something to think about with your next marriage. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Running out of wine was a catastrophe for the honor, shame-based society uh, that Jesus and his mother and friends were all part of. I mean, this, uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be. You know, I've conducted a lot of, officiated at a lot of weddings in my life. And now I'll make my second confession today. I always wondered what would happen if the bride or the groom didn't show up. <laughs> How long would we wait? And if we finally decided that, well, <laughs> the missing person is not going to show, would we have the reception or would we all go home? Yeah. Right. I think you, you can catch the drama of that kind of situation. And this is what's happening here. I mean, they have no wine, and they're there for three or four or five days. Mm -hmm. Well, this I is just, a traumatic yeah. situation. Exactly. Well, I'm just thinking that um, uh, my neighbors are having um, a week-long wedding right now, and I think we're in maybe day four. Okay. Uh, and uh, the evenings are very lively, very enthusiastic, a lot of music. I think the wine is not running out over there. Um, <laughs> and even in the mornings, the music begins around six or seven. And um, yeah, it's it's a festive time. I'm I'm very enthralled by all the proceedings. <laughs> and I'm suspecting that these aren't Canadian. No, these are not Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a, another culture. Yeah. And they're having a wonderful time. And actually, I'm celebrating with them from my open window. And uh, <laughs> I'm very happy for them. 
So uh, Mary just states the problem to her son. Yeah. So Jesus was clearly a very helpful, supportive son. And it was normal for his mother to turn to him. Mm -hmm. So what did she expect? Perhaps she would have heard of his baptism and uh, uh, saw the disciples he now had. He didn't have 12 yet. And it reminded her of the prophetic words of the angel to her. And uh, uh, was Mary perhaps pushing Jesus to authenticate her claim that Jesus was a virgin birth? Uh, Vernon McGee really puts this nicely. Uh, if we can read a quote from him. Mm -hmm. Gabriel had announced that she, a virgin, would conceive of the spirit. From that moment and during the intervening years, there was always a question about her virginity. People raised questions about Jesus. She is really saying, here is your opportunity to perform a miracle and demonstrate that I am accurate when I say that you were virgin born and that you are the one whom I have claimed you are. Here she is asking for him to do something that will demonstrate who he is to clear her name. He tells her that he is going to do just that. He will clear her name, but that hour has not yet come. I thought that was very insightful. Mm -hmm. So we're on uh, chapter two, verse four, uh, Jesus responds to his mother. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. So this is a recurring uh, statement by Jesus. My time has not yet come. His time will come. And he's referring to his death and resurrection. Jesus has come from the desert. He's gaining disciples. And the consciousness of what he needs to do is pressing on him. He has been gone for two months and has maybe five disciples with him. He's announcing that his agenda is now God's agenda, not her agenda. Perhaps Jesus is debating as to when he needs to show the first sign which points to who his father is. Now we continue with the story, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, this is an expression of trust Mary has in her son. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are the last words recorded by Mary in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's the best advice uh, she could give, not only to the caterers, but to anyone listening, yeah. including the reader. We're on verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Thank you. So 20 gallons is about 100 liters. So just to give you some feel for this. Mm -hmm. So there's these containers hold a lot of water. So we're talking about 600 potentially 600 liters of water. Yes. Hmm. That's a lot of work. Just, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about the act of pulling water up from the, the well and filling these and just imagining like, was this water drawn 
right then or had this water already been sitting in here and i'm just imagining what this actually looks like and also back to mary you know i just love how her response is such a mother response you know it's like these are our kids we we feel like we know them well um and the way that she just goes yeah 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 and you know just do whatever he tells you to do like this is going to happen here you know something's going to happen i i just i don't know i love that it just somehow there's something in it motherly that i love thank you warren didn't make that addition <laughs> <laughs> only you could in this group thank you sasha <laughs> so um ceremonial washing has many precedents in the old testament and I would like to take one, which is a very inclusive example of ceremonial washings. And by the way, what, what sort of water would you call the water in, the, uh, in these uh, barrels? Maybe I would have called it toilet water. It, were, it was there to wash up. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. You know, and the feet were dirty and... yeah. They didn't have showers and so on. And so, yeah. yeah. So this adds an extra dimension that you're turning toilet water into fabulous wine. But, <laughs> but um, well, yeah, that's quite a, quite a concept. Uh, but isn't it more, I mean, ceremonial washing wasn't about being clean. Physically, literally. It, I, I saw it more as like holy water. Ah, you know, uh -huh. you you you'd go through these rituals it wasn't just it wasn't used to wash their feet with so much as it was to do all the ceremonies that they felt they needed to do to be clean uh -huh. the ritual. excellent segue to go to numbers chapter 19 okay um see what actually happened here okay we're in numbers 19 the lord said to moses and aaron here is another legal requirement commanded by the Lord. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer, a perfect animal that has no defects and has never been yoked to a plow. Give it to Eliezer, the priest, and it will be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Eliezer will take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tabernacle. As Eliezer watches, the red heifer must be burned, its hide, meat, blood, and dung. Eliezer, the priest, must then take a stick of cedar, a hyssop branch, and some scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire where the heifer is burning. Then the priest must wash his clothes. Excuse me, just oh, before you go on. Yeah. Have any of you watched uh, uh, a cow being killed? No. Can't say I have, not a, not in a not in a ritual way. Yeah, so I have. I grew up on a farm okay. in Africa, mm -hmm. and we didn't send the animals to the abattoir. Mm. It was done on the farm, and I don't think I ever got used to it. Right. Mm -hmm. It was always <clears throat> a horrific event for me. Yeah. And the burning of an animal like this takes a lot of wood mm. because, mm. you know, our, our bodies, including animal bodies, are 
well, differs 70 or 80 percent water. Right, right. So it's very wet, and to burn it up and turn it to ash takes a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. We're ready for the second paragraph, Sasha. Then the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Afterward, he may return to the camp, though he will remain ceremonially unclean until morning or until evening. The man who burns the animal must also wash his clothes and bathe, him, bathe himself in water, and he too will remain unclean until evening. Then someone who is ceremonially clean will gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them in a purified place outside the camp. They will be kept there for the community of Israel to use in the water for the purification ceremony. This ceremony is performed for the removal of sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes and he will remain ceremonially unclean until evening. This is a permanent law for the people of Israel and any foreigners who live among them. Okay, so far so good about ceremonial washing. Now it changes. If we can read the next paragraph. All those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves on the third and seventh days with the water of purification. Then they will be purified. But if they do not do this on the third and seventh days, they will continue to be unclean even after the seventh day. All those who touch a dead body and do not purify themselves in the proper way of in the proper way defile the Lord's tabernacle and they will be cut off from the community of Israel. Since the water of purification was not sprinkled on them, their defilement continues. Do you think this is just ceremonial now? Or do you think they are actually uh, sanitary reasons? We know about germs. We know about uh, infectious diseases. Yeah. Well, and plus, aren't they putting, uh, where was it written uh, that they're putting the ashes, were they putting the ashes in the water? Yes. Um, we'll come to that. Yeah. So let's right. read the next paragraph. This is the ritual law that applies when someone dies inside a tent. All those who enter that tent and those who were inside when the death occurred will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Any open container in the tent that was not covered with a lid is also defiled. And if someone in an open field touches the corpse of someone who was killed with a sword or who died a natural death, or if someone touches a human bone or a grave, that person will be defiled for seven days. Okay, so when it talks about any container that was open, it sounds to me like this is a probable infection of bacteria or virus or something that's going on here. And this is more than ceremonial that it's actually a health matter. Yeah. Well, and I'm just thinking too of like flies and that kind of stuff um, and getting into food and, and whatnot. So absolutely, I think we're... Okay, so we'll read the last uh, 
paragraph we're going to read. Next. To remove the defilements, put some of the ashes from the burnt purification offering in a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then someone who is ceremonially clean must take a hyssop branch and dip it into the water. That person must sprinkle the water on the tent, on all the furnishings in the tent, and on the people who were in the tent. Also on the person who touched a human bone or touched someone who was killed or who died naturally or touched a grave. On the third and seventh days, the person who is ceremonially clean must sprinkle the water on those who are defiled. Then on the seventh day, the people being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe themselves, and that evening they will be cleansed of their defilement. Yes, yeah, so you, uh, the process is you burn this animal with a few additions, uh, and then after that, um, you use the ashes from the sacrifice. Uh, and you mix it with water and you sprinkle it uh, on people who have been exposed to death. So um, it's a ceremonial washing, but it's also uh, the sanitization of the situation. So when uh, you went to the temple, uh, you bathed in a mikvah which is like a depression in the ground, which has water in it. But you can go down into it and wash your feet and your hands and your face and however much you want to wash. Um, and there, there were many of these mikvahs around the temple so that the pilgrims who came to worship at the temple could go and clean themselves in the mikvah first. And you could say that was ceremonial. Uh, I think we would say today those were for health reasons, like we wear masks or gowns. Yeah, we wear masks and gowns and gloves and boots. If you go into a ward where a person has an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So you can say um, that's just a health um but in a society like Israel, um, I think it would be seen, they didn't know about germs, that this was sort of a religious ceremonial protection mm -hmm. uh, that was being placed on them. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that it was helpful to wash, but it became part of their routine, and so it protected them from the transfer of germs. Yeah. Hmm. So these jars may be taken to represent the outward uh, cleansing offered by the mosaic rituals where the virtue was in the water uh, that had been mixed with uh, these ashes. Hmm. Okay, so you actually made holy water, not by boiling the hell out of it, <laughs> by <laughs> mixing in these ashes. Right. Uh, now, we know that ash has both uh, antiseptic and also um, detergent properties. Mm -hmm. So, um, the wine represents the newness of the kingdom uh, of God ushered in by Jesus Christ. 
And the miracle of wine from water points to the miracle of new hearts in place of old hearts. Rebirth for natural birth and supernatural for the natural. And Jesus works this personal sign miracle in our hearts whenever we admit that our wine has run out. Mm. Wow. I like that. Yeah. That That's one that wants to just settle in nice and slowly, that thought. That's quite profound. Well, and, and our wine represents the the fig leaf garment that is represented by the fig leaf garment that Adam and Eve tried to conjure up. Uh, they didn't do a very good job of covering themselves. So the quicker we realize our wine has run out, the better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I remind you that one of the gifts of the Spirit is joy. Mm -hmm. We're on verse 7 of John chapter 2. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So Jesus could have had the wineskins that held wine filled. But instead, he has these barrels filled, these water pots filled. Like, mm. that's amazing. On the other hand, I'm also realizing they are, this is fresh water going into these. And so I'm very happy now. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like the toilet water. <laughs> no, I was going to have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, look, you know, um, grace is generous. Yeah. Grace is not quid pro quo. Right. Where you get as you have given. Right. Uh, it's overflowing and abundant. Mm. Um, and this wedding will now become the talk of Israel for the overflowing of the fabulous wine at the feast. Mm -hmm. No one would remember the groom's robe or the gifts he gave the bride. Mm -hmm. They would not remember the food. It was the never-ending wonderful wine that would be remembered and talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So Jesus is the water of life, but he is more. He's the wine of life, even well, the wine of eternal life. Well, and I'm just thinking back to Mary now. Um, you know, the, the village is small, everyone talks, all the ladies are around the well, and I can only imagine for days it would be, she goes to the well, all the ladies, oh my goodness, your son, oh, your son. I mean, she would have been the talk of the town, everyone would have been congratulating her, telling her they couldn't believe it, I mean the the afterglow for mary i am sure would have been tremendous from this yeah the stigma that she'd put up with for so many years is finally removed mm -hmm. yeah in many people's minds anyway yeah so i have a suggestion about our praying never tell jesus what to do because if you'd been telling jesus what to do you would have probably said, Jesus, can't you uh, 
refill the wineskins. Mm. Right, right. And so by leaving it open-ended, mm -hmm. Jesus can be his normal, gracious, generous self. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love that. True. We're on mm -hmm. verse 8. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize that where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. So yeah. the best for last, mm -hmm. because the first did not last. <laughs> he's a poet very clever you know it's prophetic of eternal life after natural life mm -hmm. it's like the sun which gets brighter by the hour like wine which improves with the years when we've been there 10,000 years we will have just begun to sample the wonder of the joy of being with God and each other. Mm. Every millennium will bring more joy and satisfaction because of the presence of the Master of Grace. Amen. We're on verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana, Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Thank you. Um, John was no stranger to Jewish tradition and symbols. He understood the number seven used throughout scripture to represent completion. And he uses this system of seven four times throughout this book. He does so, but never calls attention to this pattern, as he does in the book of Revelation. So um, he, he chooses seven miracles as signs that Jesus is divine. There are, of course, many more miracles that Jesus did. Mm -hmm. But John chooses seven, and he never calls them miracles. He calls them signs, because a sign points you in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And a miracle can just be something that satisfies your curiosity or brings you temporary happiness, like feeding the 5,000 and so on. But John wants these miracles that he chooses to point you to the fact that Jesus is really divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here are the seven signs. Water to wine. And then he heals an official son. And then he heals a 30-year-old, 8-year-old invalid anonymously. The man doesn't know who healed him. Mm. And then fourth, he feeds the 5,000. Uh, nobody asked him to. It was his initiative. Fifth, he walks on water to save his disciples. Sixth. He heals a man blind from birth who had never been done. It had never been done in Israel before. It was completely unique. And then seventh is the resurrection of Lazarus, 
So that's seven signs. Each one of these signs play a crucial role in helping us reach the conclusion that Jesus is divine. To these seven, we may add two more, the self-resurrection of Jesus Christ and the miraculous catching of fish in the last chapter of um, the Gospel of John. Six of these seven signs required no faith on the part of the recipients. Hmm. They were just sovereign acts of grace and truth about God by Jesus. Mm -hmm. They're all pointing to the glory of God, which is his goodness as revealed by Jesus and to Moses 1,500 years previously. Mm. On the cross, as he responded to the thief and his executioners, we see the glory of God in the compassion and mercy demonstrated by Jesus. We may also say that Adam and Eve were created in God's glory because the word used for the image of God is the same Hebrew word translated as glory. Hmm. The image of God and glory. <clears throat> the glory. So when Jesus says... Uh, just before the crucifixion, he's talking to God and he says, I've brought you glory. Now reveal your glory in me. Mm -hmm. He's talking about compassion and kindness. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about glitter and right. gold. Mm. Yeah. So that seeing of the things that he did were really to highlight what the image of God is. And then, yeah, like just trying to really, um, boy, I don't know. This is this is beautiful. I'm hearing it in a new way. So yeah, I think I think we're going to stop here in this podcast, uh, and then we'll talk about the uh, uh, the seven the sequences of seven in the book of John in the next podcast, and the healing of the. Uh, um, official son in chapter four, the mm. second sign. Mm -hmm. Let's pray together, dear God. We want to bring you glory and honor. And now we suddenly stop in your presence and realize that we do that by being kind and compassionate to each other. Mm -hmm. Thank you for revealing this to us. We know that whenever you reveal something, you empower it. Mm -hmm. And we are happy. Amen. 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 You can find the recording of our podcast on our website, uh, as well as the PDF document that we've been using, so you can follow along or at least see all the passages. And so that website is rediscoveringgod.ca, and on there there is the, um, the the PDF document, 
the uh, link for the podcast, as well as our YouTube link. We are now on YouTube. So if you want to see us live, then you can go and watch it on YouTube. Wonderful. And we'd also love to invite you to our Monday evening Zoom discussion where Ian and Warren lead us out. And um, we are currently going through the podcast uh, where we get to have discussion and really dive in a little deeper and get our, um, our, our most pressing questions answered. Um, it's a really wonderful time of fellowship and connection with the group. Um, we share in community and resources as well. We'd really love to have you join us. We're going to be meeting um, at 6.30 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, you just add in the link 403-506-9201. We'd love to see you. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can reach us at rediscoveringgod twenty two zero at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you and know how this journey of rediscovering the God that Jesus knew is changing your life.